We've been looking at David, but let's take a, a little while to look at Saul. Now, some of you remember back in December when I told you about Lawn Chair Larry and his 1982 journey. Remember, he had a six-pack and then several surplus balloons filled with helium from the Army-Navy store and attached them to his lawn chair and shot straight in towards space. You'll remember he ended up in the uh, approach corridor of LAX. Now, some of you probably wondered if that was really a true story. But I have to tell you that about three months ago, I saw the story of Lawn Chair Larry uh, on the Discovery Channel and the interview they had with him after he'd been arraigned, uh, after his arrest. Uh, but also, you may have noticed in the paper this week, there's another guy that emulated Lawn Chair Larry for the second time. He had done this and he shot up uh, to space. I marvel at that, that people are willing just to shoot up in the air like that. But what amazes me is how they plan to get down. Going up, I think, is one thing, but getting down, it seems to me, is the real trick. You remember Larry took a BB gun so he could shoot the balloons and hopefully ease his descent. You know, that would be a long way to fall. I started thinking about some other long falls. Allegedly, uh, D.B. Cooper, you remember, uh, jumped from an airplane, was never found again, took a long fall with a lot of money in his possession. Some of us who are old enough to remember Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid remember the long fall at the end of the movie. I started thinking about what's the longest fall that I've ever seen or heard about. And I had to decide this, that really the longest fall I've ever heard about was a fall that I don't know the physical distance, but metaphorically it was a fall from heaven to hell. It was the fall of King Saul. At one point in King Saul's life, he is God's anointed. He is very close to God, working out the purposes of heaven for Israel. And toward the end of his life, he is opposed to everything that God stands for in Israel. He has made a very long fall. I'd like to talk with you about that fall this morning as you pull out your outline if you want to follow along. The first thing is to summarize it. And, and I didn't think of this summary. Someone else did, but I think it's a great summary. At the end of his life, Saul goes to visit a, a witch, a medium, in Endor. He has to go to Endor because Saul had, early in his kingship, when he walked with God, expelled all the wizards and mediums. Because both Leviticus and Deuteronomy said there were to be no wizards or witches in the land. But at the end, he goes to consult one. And the summary I was given about this is that Saul betrayed the very values he claimed to base his life upon. He ends up turning his back on the things he claims to believe. He betrays the very values he built his life upon. Have you ever heard of anybody who did that? Did you watch the news this week and the pro-family senator has to come forward because he has been found on the call list of the Washington, D.C. madam? Or maybe on more than one occasion we have heard or read of a pastor who in, ends up engaging in the very uh, behaviors that he's condemned or from the pulpit, it happens. And when things like that happen, I begin to wonder, were these people just hypocrites? Were they just deceitful? Was Saul just playing a game? Or were they not hypocrites? Did these things just sort of happen to them or sneak up on them? I tend to give people the benefit of a doubt. And my hunch is that very few people want to be just bold-faced liars and hypocrites like that. The, the reason people end up betraying the very values that they claim to base their life upon is that it sort of sneaks into their life. So the question before us this morning is, how did 
Saul fall so far? The answer is a little at a time. A little at a time. May have been almost imperceptible, but God perceived it as he fell away from God. And my thesis is this, that the hearts fall from God, not from one deliberate bad choice or wrong choice, but from a number of smaller choices made along the way. People tend to drift away from God rather than make deliberate steps away from him. But the steps go away from God nonetheless. So that's what I want to do for a few minutes um, uh, this morning. And that is look at six of the smaller or what look like smaller choices that Saul made that rather than being a step toward God, ended up being a step further away from God and it caused his heart to fall. The first one is this, that in his life, Saul often chose anxiety over trust. When presented with an option, he chose to rely on his anxiety and fear about a situation rather than the trust in God. We saw this a few weeks ago and we talked about when Saul was surrounded by the Philistines as he is here in chapter 28. Back in chapter 13, and he knows he needs to fight them before they get even stronger, but he knows that he must make, they must make a sacrifice to God before they go into battle and inquire of God. But he's not willing to wait because he's afraid the Philistines will be too strong, and so he goes ahead and illegally offers a, a sacrifice to God. He, he chose to listen to his fear and to his anxiety. Later, when David becomes quite popular... Uh, as a soldier and leader, he listens to his anxiety and rather than to claim David and work alongside David, he tries to kill David. And in the story today, when he's no longer hearing from God and the Philistines are at his doorstep, he chooses to go visit the medium, the witch. He chooses to listen to his anxiety as opposed to trusting in God. Contrast this with David in the 23rd Psalm when he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David often listens instead to trust in God as opposed to his fears. Second poor choice I think Saul made is he chose convenience over obedience. It was convenient, even though it was highly illegal, to offer the sacrifice himself. God had been very clear, you wait for Samuel to do this sacrifice, and, but it was more convenient for him to do it himself. It was more convenient to go seek out a wizard than to uh, obey that command when he so desperately wanted a word for his life. He often chooses the convenient way, the, the way we might say is the shortcut. And uh, you may have occasionally done this yourself, where you look for a way that seems to be shorter, even though it's not the prescribed way, and you think you can do better by that. Uh, this used to happen to us often at Christmas time, putting together toys for our children. Time was running short. We wanted to have them ready. And quite frankly, 23 steps to put this together just seems like too many. We could cut out a few. The toys never quite got put together correctly because we didn't obey and follow the instructions. It's like an old farmer told me years ago. I still think he's right to this day. He said, usually the longest distance between two points is the shortcut. And that's what happens to Saul. And it takes him further away from God. Third thing that Saul chooses here is he chooses uh, rationalization over confession. God is gracious to Saul, as Jane point, points out, even when he makes a poor choice. God gives him a chance. God brings that to his attention. But rather than to confess that he has done wrong and make it right, Saul rationalizes. And so when he offers the illegal sacrifice, he says to Samuel, Well, you're late. If you'd have been here on time... You could offer this, not me. 
when, uh, when he comes and consults a witch, his excuse is this, well, God won't answer me. God won't talk to me. He always has some sort of reason. When uh, one time Saul is supposed to wipe out everything that belongs to the Amalekites. We talked about this a few uh, weeks ago. The Amalekites were ancient enemies that go back to the Exodus. And he was supposed to not take any spoils of war, but destroy everything. And instead he keeps the spoils of war. And when he gets caught doing it, he said, well, you know, the men made me do it. You know, it was sort of their pension plan. It was, it was sort of their bonus. I had to keep the stuff for them. He always rationalizes. You need to understand this, that rarely does anyone grow when they blame. Blaming doesn't help anyone grow. Usually when you want to recognize a person who's not particularly healthy in your life, look for the person that continues to blame others for their problems. Now, it was a a Sunday, much unlike today. It was in December, New York, about a decade ago. You may remember this, when the San Diego Chargers visited the New York Giants. And it started snowing. And they had snow and ice in the stadium. So some of the fans who'd had a little too much cheer uh, began to make these very compact, tight, and hard snowballs and start chunking them toward the San Diego uh, sideline. The police and security were called in and they were able to arrest a number of people for, the, for this uh, conduct and haul them away. But uh, one guy they didn't arrest. Uh, and the paper the next day showed his picture. And here he is like this. He's, he's getting ready to let go of another snowball toward the San Diego sideline. And the paper said, can you identify this man? We're looking for him. Fifteen people called the paper and said, yeah, we know who that is. Gave him his name. They gave his name to the police. The police arrested him. And when they brought him in and he, he was arraigned, then he came out and he spoke to the press. And this is what he said about his behavior. He, ba- he gave five different explanations in, in the few minutes that they asked him questions, the first one was this, was, well, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. You know, everybody was doing it. Number two was, I was simply throwing a snowball back at the fans who were throwing them toward me. The third one was, well, things got out of hand. The fourth one was, well, why did I get singled out when everybody was doing it? And my favorite excuse he made, number five, was, you know, the whole thing could have been avoided if it just hadn't snowed. Choosing rationalization over confession. Fourth poor choice that Saul made was this. He chose relief over healing. There's a very interesting story. As Saul begins to go on a different path from God, God tries to get Saul's attention. So God removes the Holy Spirit from Saul and sends instead an evil or what's called a distressing spirit upon Saul. Now, we could argue about could God really do that or why would... uh, Uh, what's involved in that. But that's, to me, not the point. The point is this. I think God is trying to get Saul's attention to say, look, you're going the other way. I want you to wake up to this. But instead of waking up, he he chooses relief instead over healing his relationship. And he finds that David, when David plays the harp, it makes him feel better. It anesthetizes him. It numbs him to the effects of his life apart from God. And he chooses to keep going that way rather than to face the issue. And this reminds me that it's always a poor choice to treat the symptoms. We can't just treat the symptoms. You've got to move to it toward uh, the deeper issues. If you've got problems at work, summer vacation is not going to fix them. If there's a person that, that you're having difficulties with in a relationship, avoiding them is never going to solve the relationship. Those are symptoms. We have to move for the deeper healing that God offers by facing our problems. Squarely, Saul refuses to do this. Fifth, uh, Saul chooses competition over cooperation. 
What happens when David kills Goliath and then David starts uh, winning battles, uh, Saul gets real nervous because the women start singing songs and the lyrics go like this. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul gets really upset and decides after they start singing that song that he's going to kill David. He's going to compete with David. And he doesn't want, I mean, the kingship doesn't seem to be big enough, the, the country for both of them. But what's interesting is Saul's been a Hebrew all his life. He knows how Hebrew poetry works, which is in poetry, one verse builds and expands upon the one before. So if the one before is thousands, then the next one's got to go up from that. And the women are simply singing chronologically. And they start with Saul because he's older. He's been killing people longer than David. Been killing enemies longer, David. And then they just follow the rules of poetry and they assign to him ten times greater a number. But Saul has so lost his perspective that he throws that out the window and decides to kill David. Competition's probably a wonderful thing on the golf course or tennis court or football field. But competition in the things of God is clearly out of bounds. God has not called churches or individuals to compete with one another in matters of faith. We're called to cooperate. And then lastly... This is what we see in the life of Saul. Number six, he chose God really for insurance rather than relationship. All Saul wants from God is an insurance policy. He just wants insider information. What are the Philistines doing? What do I have to do to defeat him? That's why he wants God. He wants to use God. And when the insider tips stop coming, that's when he abandons this relationship and goes his own way and then even seeks out a witch at the end. Our relationship with God is never to use God. Our relationship with God through Jesus Christ isn't just so we can check the blank that when we die, we somehow end up at the gates and, and we tell Peter, you've got to let me in. I said the prayer. I signed the contract. It's not what it's about at all. That's insurance. God's hardly interested in that. God is interested with people who want a relationship with God now. And what makes life eternal life is the relationship starts now and it just keeps going. It's not stopped by anything, not even death. That's what God's interested in, not as some sort of holy insurance policy against long-term disability. Those are some poor choices that he made. And we've been long this morning on diagnosis. What about prescription? Let me make two suggestions about preventing your heart from falling that far. The first one is this. My strong advice to you is that, number one, you engage in ruthless self-examination. You engage in ruthless self-examination. This is what Psalm 139 says. That the author invites God, says, Oh God, search me and try me and see if there are any wicked ways in me. In other words, let me know where I'm taking a step away from you instead of towards you. Let me know when I'm sliding off the path. Bring it to my attention. Search me and know me. It starts with a ruthless examination, asking God to shine a light on your life. Then number two, I would encourage you strongly to find some accountability. It's one thing to do business with God, but I think it's another thing to do business with God in the presence of another person's or a person or persons. Uh, Proverbs puts it this way, that there is safety in an abundance of counselors. And that's not just for a nation, that's for an individual. If you can gather people around you to support you, to challenge you, to encourage you, you're more likely not to stray too far from the path. Some years ago, they did a survey on pastors who euphemistically had had what they call a fall. 
And this is what they found about those pastors in the survey. There were three things in common. Number one was they never thought it could happen to them. They would never engage in behavior that contradicted the very values that they claimed to build their life upon. Second thing they found was this. But on the other hand, they thought that they sort of deserved their indiscretion. That God owed it to them. That the people didn't understand that their wife was this, or their husband was that, or that people treated them like this. And actually, in the scheme of things, God sort of owed them this pleasure, whatever it was. And the third thing, though, this is most interesting to me, they found that none of these pastors were in any sort of accountability groups. Nobody ever told that particular emperor when he or she was not wearing any clothes. Find some people. And bring your life before God with them together. You know, Lawn Chair Larry ascended very quickly. And when he came, it came time to go down. He had his gun so he could shoot out the balloons. And he started shooting them down, but he descended much more rapidly than he thought he would. And he didn't quite make it to the ground. A power line broke his fall. It was only by the grace of God that... He was not hurt as his power line, as his chair sat there in the power line. They climbed up the pole. Um, they rescued him. They arrested him. Later, released him. It strikes me that it was the grace of God that broke the fall of Larry. But you and I should not be counting on the grace of God to break our falls. We should be rather counting on the grace of God to keep us up.